taking a look through your exam, seeing what you did right or wrong. Um, you June will have all the exams plus a key for the breakdown of how the points were assigned if you want to sit down and go through that. Okay? And what we do in the key is to break down, we're going to give you a 10-point question. You got two points if you did this, two points if you did this, etc. down the line. Now, what happens a lot in exams is people have a tendency to do a brainstorm. You just start coming through the information. So, we read through that. The problem you run into if you do that is you might have gotten 10 points, but then you started telling me that you actually were incorrect. I started taking points out of this. Okay? So, that's how some of the grading works, because if you tell me raw information, I'm going to have to be something. So, brevity, I really enjoy it. Get to the take home point. Don't keep on getting yourself into a problem with these things. That's a wonder. Okay? So again, I was pretty pleased with that. A high 70, close to 80 average is really good. Um, so you guys know respiration really well in front of you. So again, questions about it, let me know. Um, the other thing I was going to do is just tell you about, there's a paper that just came out. Um, I'd like to highlight things we learned in class. They are pertinent to what's going on today. Um, this came out September 28th. And what they did is they solved the structure of the C subunits of mitochondria, and actually from bovine, or bovine mitochondria, they think they use bovine hyporia. Um, and these are so conserved that this is probably how your ATP synthesis. The interesting thing is that there are only eight C subunits. Right? That means 2.7 protons for every ATP. That's pretty amazing because you find in nature, um, animals are going to have eight we talk about yeast can have 10, there's some bacteria that have up to 11, 14, up to 15, and you can see the enormous variety of diversity you see in the ability to generate a proton motor force, how much of a proton motor force you need to generate a molecule, how many protons are required. This also will have an implication now, as I'm sure all of you um, have always been taught, that if you break glucose down all the way into CO2, the amount of energy you get out of that comes out to be 38 ATP. Well, clearly that's not true for humans anymore. So it's going to be more like 45. Right? So animals will have, um, because of the C subunits, um, you have the 2.7 protons per ATP. And if you're interested in this, it was in this issue of PNAS, which is September 28th. There's also a commentary about it, and it's pretty interesting commentary because I mentioned to you that it's very controversial about how many protons are coupled to ATP, and that um, commentary does a nice job of, in essence, going through all the controversy since the 1950s, and it really wasn't figured out until this paper came out, and now they know really the total number of protons associated with ATP. So I thought that was pretty interesting. So the other thing I'll tell you about is I'm going to upload this information onto the of learning UW, you can download it. It's mainly, I did this last year, it's because I get a lot of people that come through, you're probably not accustomed to sitting and pushing electrons through everything and looking at these pathways in certain ways. So, to give you an example, it's kind of, hopefully you can read my handwriting. So this is going to be uploaded onto learning UW. And this is for the glycolysis carbon-carbon bond breakage, just to give you an idea of how I think about these pathways and reiterate the things I've been trying to emphasize in class. Right? So this just shows you glucose, I did the oxidation value, dihydroxyacetone phosphate, glycerol phosphate, and the process, how it goes, and then how that aldolase reaction goes of pushing all the electrons. Right? The other thing it does is trying to give you some just general information to think about. 
no change in oxidation value, therefore no redox chemistry. Okay? So that's one thing I always stress to you. If you're looking at a pathway, one of the first things you can look at, you immediately know something. The two phosphates are added, but there's no change in redox. Okay, there's a great question in the confusing topics about how do you tell the difference between whether a phosphorylation is going to be catalyzed by ATP or whether it's going to be doing it in an ATP independent manner. Well, if it's going to do ATP independent, there has to be some energy to add it. It's generally um, onto a redox reaction. So what you can assume is that there's two phosphorylations that happened, but the oxidation values did not change. Therefore, you probably use ATP to do the phosphorylation. Right? If the oxidation value changed, odds are you use redox to make that phosphorylation. So when you look through pathways, you see something that becomes phosphorylated, do that quick oxidation value, and you start to know some information about it. And the last thing on here is carbon-carbon break occurs between C3 and C4. Notice the C2 is a keto, and this just explains to you how you can think about where the break is going to happen. Right? So what I did is this is glycolysis. As I said, you'll, you'll have this uh, there in your W if you want to walk through these. I also did the same thing for, this is the albylase mechanism for a ship base. If you're going to actually use lysine instead of using a keto group. I also did it for transalbylase mechanisms, transketolase mechanisms, and the TCA cycle carbon-carbon bond breakage. And there's also one more on there. Um, that I did put up here is that um, there's also one for, or for the enter-deuteron pathway. So every single one of those pathways I've talked about, I've walked through it like that. So you can sit there and read through those pages. <coughs> and the reason they're in my handwriting is this takes an enormous amount of time to sit and draw all that out. Chem um, draw, so this is a little bit faster, right? Just for your information, right? To help you think about these pathways in the way I think about it, the patterns that you see in them all the time, all right? And so, what I wanted to start off with today is to try to short circuit what will probably happen tonight when I check my emails for confusing topics, is to talk about those transketolase and transalbylase mechanisms again, because I think we all agree I kind of blew through that too fast. So, what I wanted to do is just walk you through this to give you an idea about how this works. The first thing that you should always do these systems you're trying to figure out whether it's transalylase or transketolase is you will generally see two molecules, okay? There's two carbon compounds that have to come together. One of them is always the aldehyde, okay? Because you have to add onto the aldehyde. So you can immediately know if you're looking at two molecules, which one of them is going to gain carbons off of the other one because it has to be the one that has the aldehydes, okay? Based on that, you can also make the assumption, if you know which one's the aldehyde, you can count the number of carbons on that molecule, right? If the number changed then by two, you know it must have been a transketolase. If it changed by three, it must have been a transalkylase, right? So if you're trying to keep those straight, all you really need to do is look at those systems and you can gener generalize about them. Let's see if I went back to the system. If you look at xylulose 5-phosphate and ribose 5-phosphate, ribose 5-phosphate has the aldehyde. That has to be the one where things are added onto it. So if you look at that, you can say, well, what happened is I went from 5, now I've got 7 carbons. So there must be two carbons moved onto it, so it's got to be a transketolase. 
If it's going to work in reverse, this is the acceptor with the aldehyde. So it has three carbons, ends up with five. Two carbons move, it has to be trans. Does everyone follow that? So the other thing I try to stress again is patterns and how things happen and the similarity between them. So why don't we take this system that's drawn up here and we'll just walk through it. So that I'm going to take that example on the top part and walk you through how this is going to happen. The first thing to keep track of is the fact that what's going to happen is you're going to move this part of the molecule. And the important thing is that the movement of that molecule means you have to break a bond right adjacent to that cube. Anytime you see that, you should automatically say it's got to be binding pyrophosphate because it's a plug. And the reason for that this is the only way you can push the electrons appropriately. So that's the, you know, finding pyrophosphate is a more complicated molecule. All that really matters is that part of it, because that's where the chemistry is going to happen. And this is on the following slide, but I want to push the electrons to make sure you understand what's going on. The catalytic base pulls this off. These electrons then are free to be nucleophilic. You've got a molecule that only has one carbon that's going to be electrophilic. It's going to attack here, push these electrons out. Take the notes now that helps you go through them. If you don't catch all the steps, it is in those notes. All right. So now, what thiamine pyrophosphate has done is, in essence, it added an extra carbon-containing compound onto that molecule. So I can put these out. In fact, I don't just pick them up for a time. So now, when you look at this molecule. Remember, you still want to break this bond, but it's significantly changed the chemistry of the molecule. And it's changed it because if you think about, again, alpha keto acids, or beta keto acids, excuse me, and how you can move things around, you want to break this, you can because you can move them here, because this is the alpha position, that's the beta, and you can push the electrons. You look at this now, think of this as the alpha carbon that's the beta. You have a carbon double bonded to a component, in this case a nitrogen. And so you can very easily pull these electrons out. They'll drop these and go to here. And then these go into that nitrogen.
this molecule down here has been released. So you've already released one product. So now what happens is the second substrate comes in, which is the aldehyde, which is going to get the electrons added onto it, or going to get the two-carbon unit. Notice thiamine pyrophosphate now is, is carrying that two-carbon unit. It's holding onto it. So you've transferred it off of the original molecule onto thiamine pyrophosphate, and now you need to transfer it off. Those electrons drop. These electrons attack here. This comes out. <coughs>
So now it becomes tethered here and it's holding on to a three-party rather than a two-party unit. The other piece can leave, the next piece comes in, transfers it off. Okay? So mechanistically, the TPP is doing the exact same thing as you see in that reaction as well. So push the electrons through the transalkylase reaction and you can follow this. So again, the details of this are in that handout that's going to be uploaded on Learning UW. It's like seven pages of just sitting there and pushing the electrons and trying to walk you through every single pathway that we've talked about that deals with carbon-carbon bond breakage and how to think about it. And hopefully you'll see at the end of that, walking yourself through it, once you understand how to break carbon-carbon bonds, they all work generally the same way. Right? Are there any questions about that? So the other thing I'll point out is that uh, I mentioned very early on this semester the fact that there's this universality of, of, um, of biochemistry throughout biology. And that it was a Wisconsin idea that um, the concept in the early experiment was that you could take an extract from rice, take that extract and put it onto some growth medium with bacteria, and you enable the bacteria to grow that normally could not grow. And it turned out, after years of research, what they found out is that molecule under that system was actually thymine pyrophosphate. The fact that you can get a cofactor from rice to complement something, a mutation in a bacterium. And it was a significant finding and understanding about biology that there is common mechanisms throughout the systems. Right? So, if we look at, or look at the pentose phosphate pathway again, First time through, you release CO2, get two molecules of NADH, gets you, gets you one molecule of xylose phosphate, one molecule of ribose phosphate. You go through a transketolase reaction, transaldolase reaction, and the ultimate goal is to get the glyceraldehyde 3-phosphate. But since you went through this twice, and you made two of these molecules, you got to here. After the transaldolase, you made another molecule, fructose 6-phosphate, so that enters back in. So, so far, again, you've only moved one glucose through this system. You get to erythrose 4-phosphate, you need another molecule of xylose phosphate. That's the third time through. So that's why you get six NADPHs, three CO2s. You combine these together, you generate the glyceraldehyde 3-phosphate. That can go off for all the carbon that you're going to need or the movement down through um, the TCA cycle, etc. You've generated another molecule of fructose 6-phosphate that replenishes the system. So one molecule of glucose through. In the end, three of the carbons on that glucose went to CO2. Three of them end up as glyceraldehyde phosphate. So it's a pretty interesting pathway. It's also, in the way I'm showing you, is often referred to as the oxidative pentose phosphate pathway because it's an oxidation reaction. Right? Oxidative decarboxylations are very common. And <clears throat> I've walked you through this about how the similarities and mechanisms. Check that handout um, in my that I'll upload today. So you understand that. Anybody have any questions about that? I'm a very tired of central channel. Alright. So all of these we were talking about, I think I ended last time about it, everything's really funneling down to the pyruvate. 
And what we're trying to do is going to walk through the system how, in essence, every molecule, every carbon in glucose makes it from glucose all the way to carbon dioxide. And so you can have a variety of pathways to get glucose down to some pyruvate. So you've gone from a six carbon compound down to three carbon compounds. And you can get there by glycolysis, the endoderol pathway or the pentosphosphate pathway. <coughs> They're very common in nature. The next thing that has to happen is that pyruvate needs to be broken down even further. And you generally see it in three different ways in the cell. One of which is a pyruvate dehydrogenase complex, and we'll talk about the details of this. <clears throat> you can have a, per a pyruvate paradoxin oxidoreductase, where you can have something called a pyruvate formate ideas. If you look at this, what you're getting is a three-carbon compound going to a two-carbon compound and the release of CO2. Right? You can figure out that that is an oxidative decarboxylation because you find out that the oxidation state of pyruvate versus CO2 and acetate means there must have been an oxidation that happens through that process. The other thing is, is that the carbon-carbon bond breakage has to happen right here. Right? So it's adjacent to keto group. So not surprisingly, this requires diamond pyrophosphate. It's an oxidative reaction, so it also requires cofactors to do oxidation. Pyruvate paradoxin oxidoreductase, the same thing. Breaking the carbon-carbon bond, it's oxidation that's happening. Diamond <coughs> pyrophosphate, breaking a bond right adjacent to a keto group. So not surprisingly, TPP. And we've talked about paradoxin. Now, the other one is this pyruvate formate lias. Now, this, you're having carbon-carbon bond breakage right adjacent to that heater group, but you don't use diamond pyrophosphate. So I told you it's a general rule. Here's one where there's an exemption. The reason for the exemption comes from the fact that typically an organism will use pyruvate dehydrogenase for aerobically growing cells. They'll use pyruvate formate lias when they're growing anaerobically. So why do you think that would be? If you're growing anaerobically, what's one of the things you might have to worry about, say, if you're doing fermentation? What are the two things you have to do in fermentation? Generate ATP and balance redox. Okay, generate ATP, balance redox. Is there a difference in what's generated in this reaction versus this reaction in the context of ATP or redox? These enzymes are 
pretty interesting. The other thing I'll mention is since this has to be a carbon-carbon bond breakage, but you're not doing redox, but you still have to break next to this carbonyl group or keto group, this is a really bizarre enzyme, and it uses something called a glycyl radical. So when you are going to break right next to the carbon-carbon, that, that keto group, but you're not going to use thymine pyrophosphate, you have to use some really bizarre chemistry. He uses actually a radical on the enzyme, meaning there's a glycine that just has one electron in one position. It makes it highly reactive. And that's why it's able to do some weird chemistry without using thymine pyrophosphate. So if you look at this pyruvate dehydrogenase complex, it is quite an elaborate process. And I've shown it schematically here how it's going to work. Right? You have to break a carbon-carbon bond. Typically, you're going to use thymine pyrophosphate. That's what's shown here. Again, just the business part of thymine pyrophosphate. So you need TPP. You know it's a redox reaction. So you're going to have to have at least some electron carriers. So any, in this case, it uses both NAD and FAD. It also uses a molecule called lipoic acid, and it's enzyme tethered. And so if you walk yourself through, I'm just showing you schematically what's happening in this process. Thymine pyrophosphate attacks. You pick up a proton. This sets up the ability to do the decarboxylation because that's your alpha carbon, that's your beta. So now you can do a decarboxylation because you can push the electrons around. So you release CO2. Now the problem is it's tethered onto the cofactor, right? Just like we saw in this reaction mechanism. It's very similar. This is then going to pass this molecule off to a reduced form of this lipoic acid. So you drop the electrons, these electrons attack here. You can push the electrons so everything comes off. And in essence, what happens is you release thymine pyrophosphate, and now you have the acetyl group tethered to the lipoic acid. That's a thioester. And we've seen those repeatedly. We know that those can be exchanged very quickly because they're reactive. Coenzyme A has a sulfur, a sulfidyl group at the end. So in essence, you just do file exchange. CoA attacks here. This is replaced, so you release acetyl-CoA. Now the issue is, notice that the lipoic acid is now in its fully reduced form. It can't work unless it becomes oxidized. That's what these cofactors do. Flavin pulls off these electrons. You get FADH2. You re-oxidize <coughs> the lipoic acid. Flavin donates its electrons to NAD, you get NADH out. So you're oxidizing this, this reaction is oxidative, but part of that movement of electrons actually goes through these cofactors. So this is a, a relatively elaborate process to do this type of chemistry, but the other thing is it's many of its enzyme bound, and it's also a massive enzyme. So <coughs> This is just showing you generally it's three components. In E. coli, there are generally 24 copies of E1, 24 of E2, and 12 of E3. So it's a huge complex. In the very first lecture I gave you, I showed you that you can do this stuff called electron tomography, which in essence you can get a three-dimensional picture of exactly what's going on in the cell. And if the protein complexes are large enough, you can actually see those and map exactly where they are. So you see RNA polymerase, you see the ribosome, you also see this pyruvate complex. It's massive. Right? And so gram positives have a slightly different numbers, 60, 60, and 12. 
um, the system massive complex, but the reason for having all these copies and everything really is there's an enormous amount of flux through this system. He went back and looked at the pathway that I showed you where here's glycolysis going to TCA, and here are where those 12 compounds or precursors come out of. There's a mass amount of flux coming out of the generation of the acetylcholine. So there's an enormous amount of material flowing through here to give the cell the amount of acetylcholine it needs to actually survive. So we'll talk about um, this pyruvate paradoxin oxida reductase type of reaction uh, later in the semester. It was also briefly touched upon if you looked at um, how archaea generate their energy, how they get from pyruvate to acetyl-CoA, they actually use this type of enzyme. The reduced paradoxin then goes off to the electron transport. Okay. So pentose phosphate pathway. So it's going to give you NADH. Erythrospore-phosphate, ribose-5-phosphate, glyceraldehyde-3-phosphate. So if you're using glycolysis, you got out some ATP, you got out some reducing power, but you got six of those essential precursors out of the, out of the pathway. If you then go through the pentose-phosphate pathway, you gain three more. So you're up to nine of those 12 essential compounds. The pentose-phosphate can divide into three sections. We went through the oxidative decarboxylation, isomerizations, and rearrangements. And you need to know there's two different types of enzymes. You're going to have the transketolases and transaldolases that deal with this rearrangement reaction. And but all of it is really just moving around carbon-carbon bond breakage. We talked about two different types of aldolases. They really are whether you're going to keep this as the keto group or you're going to switch it to a shift base. Mechanistically, they work the same way. So that's not surprising why nature will use one or the other. It doesn't make that much of a difference. So there are some organisms that will use the pentose phosphate pathway for glucose catalysis instead of glycolysis. So they're not going to use enterbuterol, they're not going to use glycolysis. Everything will flow through the pentose phosphate pathway. Right? But since you can get to pyruvate, and if you have gluconeogenesis, you can flow the other direction like gluconeogenesis and get to those all those other essential metabolites. And the conversion of pyruvate to acetylcholine, you have novel enzymes. But the key really is if you're, most organisms have two copies or two different ways to do this, one of which is going to generate some redox, one of which is not. And it would make sense the cell wants to actually only use the one that's appropriate for the, for the growth, um, growth of the cells at that one particular time. So we always think about this as aerobic versus anaerobic. Um, e. coli, if you're growing it aerobically, will actually start shutting down that pyruvate dehydrogenase complex. And part of the reason why it does is you're generating lots of redox. You're pushing glucose through, you're getting lots of redox power out of it, but the problem is that's too much. And so what the cell will do, even though it's growing aerobically, um, it'll start shutting that enzyme off. And it'll start using the one that doesn't generate redox. So it's that same example when I talked about um, yeast, is that when they're doing aerobic respiration or when they're growing aerobically with glucose, about 60% of the time they're going to use fermentation. And the idea is you need to generate the appropriate amount of redox power, the appropriate amount of energy, and they'll adjust accordingly. So even though we always say aerobically they'll use this, anaerobically they'll use that, it's a good rule of thumb to understand why, but the cell will always adjust and do things um, exactly what it needs. So now that everything is funneled through from glucose all the way down to pyruvate. You've converted pyruvate to acetyl-CoA. And we're going to talk about the TCA cycle. Right? Now, 
you guys should already know every step in the PCA cycle. Because we've already actually gone through all of throughout the semester already. And the TCA cycle makes a lot of sense when you look at it that way. So, this is showing you the TCA cycle, which I know you all know and love. Um, we're going to walk through this pathway. We're going to go through the various steps. But we also want you to think about what have we already seen this semester and how does it fit into this? Because you're going to have these two carpets from acetate going to citrate. You follow this around. Notice carbon dioxide comes out. Notice there's an oxidation that happens right before it. So it's an oxidative decarboxylation. You're going to convert this to succinyl-CoA, releasing CO2. <clears throat> You're going to wind up breaking a carbon-carbon bond in the appropriate place so that you need to do diamond pyrophosphate. We'll get to succinate. And succinate goes to oxaloacetate. We went through all of that with um, fermentation and redox reactions. You have a keto group that is a methylene here, so the steps are pretty easy. You do oxidation reduction, dehydration or hydration, oxidation reduction, think of that. Right? So the TCA cycle uses all the same things we've already talked about. Carbon-carbon bond breakage to get rid of CO2, <coughs> and also reset the system with the redox. And the last essential cofactor that we're up to nine we still need to get to alpha ketoglutarate, you need to get to succinyl-CoA, and you have to get to oxaloacetate. So that'll round out those 12 essential precursors. And not surprisingly, many of these move in a forward and reverse direction, so you need to understand the flux. So the cell can control this very efficiently to make sure you have the appropriate number of precursors. So we'll start off with the beginning part of the system. Acidic, you can attack and now you've made citrate. 
So we talked about how when you do isomerizations, the reason you can move a keto group, carbonyl or keto functional group around is because it affected the, the neighboring carbon. And you can pull the proton off because it's acidic and you can move things around. This is just using it to be able to make this a nuclear plot that can attack onto their citrate. So if you look at this reaction and what's going on in the first part of the citric acid cycle or CCA cycle, you have citrate. You're trying to get rid of that carbon as CO2, right? That carbon is labeled there. Notice you have a hydroxyl group here. And if you could somehow set this up to lose this, you should know by now all you have to do is set up that keter group functionality in the right place so you can do a decarboxylation. So the first part of the citric acid cycle is take citrate, move that hydroxyl group down one. Now you just need to oxidize that to the keter group. And now you're sitting alpha, beta. Now you can just do an alpha beta. You can do the beta keto acid decarboxylation. Does everybody see that? So in essence, if you compare that to the pentose phosphate pathway, again, it's the same concept. All you're trying to do is if you're going to do a decarboxylation, you just need to get keto group in a right position. And all the metabolism is set up to go in that direction. So Again, carbon-carbon bond breakage. It's the same pathway, it's the same concept for how the system actually works. All right, I'm actually going to stop a little further today before I get into the next part of it. So your, um, your exam, the scores will be posted by noon today. If you want to see your exams, you can show up at the June office hours. If those don't fit,